Support for the Northwards podcast comes from St. Lawrence University, where a strong liberal arts tradition with real-world applications equips students to solve 21st century challenges. stlawu.edu Besides hosting this show and being NCPR's station manager, I moonlight as our Sunday afternoon host. It's a task that involves letting the audience know what shows are coming up, giving the time, and the hardest job, the weather forecast. Sometimes a minute isn't enough time to represent all the various weather permutations that might be happening around the North Country. So imagine a time when weather forecasters only had reliable data from 30 places across the entire state of New York. It wasn't that long ago, five years. Since then, a statewide project has changed that, and I can tell you, for example, that it's 43 degrees and drizzling in Cape Vincent as I write this. Some things don't change. On this edition of Northwards, improving the reliability of weather data in New York, plus a longtime editor witnesses the decline of the American newspaper, and what's so great about the tuba? That's all coming your way on Northwards from North Country Public Radio. This is Northwards, the monthly interview show from North Country Public Radio. I'm Mitch Tyke. For years, the Glens Falls Post Star was a small town newspaper with an outsized impact. At the height of its success, it boasted a healthy circulation, a staff of more than three dozen reporters, and played a major role in civic life. And it won a Pulitzer Prize. All this under the leadership of editor Ken Tingley. But like most small city daily newspapers, the last decade or so has exacted a heavy toll on the Post Star, with multiple changes in publishers and declining revenues, and today the staff is a fraction of its former size. Tingley himself retired in 2020. And Tingley says that now familiar downhill spiral of newspapers is dangerous to the health of their communities. His latest book is called The Last American Newspaper, and he joins us to talk more. Great to have you with us. Well, thank you. What made the Post Star such a strong newspaper and, and I guess such an important newspaper to the community in its heyday? We set the bar high. And, and, and I was very lucky in that respect. When I became editor in 1999, I had been sports in sports my whole career. So I needed some help. And I was very lucky to have some very strong editors around me, guys like Will Doolittle, who started in North Country and the Adirondack Daily Enterprise. His dad owned the paper down there. Bob Condon, who was the city editor, and Fred Daly and Mark Mahoney. Having those kinds of people around it uh, was was invaluable. The other thing is, I, I just think when you have small town communities, I think hunger for that type of reporting. They, they want to know uh, uh, not only about what's going on in the town, but they want to be able to weigh in and they want to be part of the discussion. And I, I think that's uh, something that we're starting to lose. The, the phrase that used to get said a lot about local newspapers that we don't hear nearly as much anymore is the idea of being the news source of record for a community. Well, yeah, and I, I think uh, it's getting more and more difficult to, for newspapers. You know, we've had such a, an erosion of resources on all the papers, and I'm sure the Plattsburgh paper and the Adirondack Daily Enterprise and the Post Star, they're all very similar in that they've lost a great deal of their staffing, and I'm sure it's, it's not that much different in the broadcasting end. We had 45 people in our newsroom at one point, probably around 2006, 2007. You know, now they have eight, uh, seven, uh, you know, so you went as a newspaper, we covered in not only Glens Falls, we covered an entire region. 
you know, from Lake George down to Saratoga Springs and Washington County and into the Adirondacks, even into Ticonderoga and Scroon Lake. You can't do that anymore. You know, it's they've pretty much relegated to kind of covering the core market. And that means that you are already seeing so many small communities that are becoming news deserts. Having worked in a variety of news settings over the years myself, it was it was really interesting to read about what brought the various people that populated your newsroom to the Post Star. I mean, papers like that have never been the kinds of places where, you know, uh, multi-decade news veterans typically go. So it sounds like there were just a lot of remarkable people you worked with who were either at the beginning of their career or who, who came from a pretty non-traditional news background. What did it take to shape all those people into, into the people that really really, you know, set the standard for for newspapers your size? Well, I think, you know, you you start with kind of having that talent just at its base and that commitment. And I think, you know, what's so disturbing to hear so often these days when people are talking about fake news and we're the enemies of the people and those types of things is that commitment. And And I think that comes through in the book about what especially the editors were willing to do to make this a, a, a better place. It's what I think kind of formed the, the whole standard for our success. We set the bar high to do in-depth journalism that would change our little corner of the world. And we were not immune to the problems of we had to hire young reporters who didn't have a lot of experience right out of college sometimes, sometimes from a weekly. Mark Mahoney came from a radio station, uh, you know, so th- that happened a lot. And but our goal was to then mold them and make them and set the bar high. And when you have reporters who are ambitious and want to succeed, uh, they do amazing things. And uh, we have many success stories of reporters who went on and did fantastic things and went on to bigger newspapers and, and all kinds of uh, success in the business of journalism. The communities the paper covers or certainly covered in uh, in its heyday are not huge. Um, and yet, as I read this book, I'm struck by just how many stories of national significance the paper has brought to the fore over the years, whether it was locally significant stories or stories that really had national resonance. Yeah, there, you know, a couple of examples. In, in 2002, you know, the state of Vermont had uh, a really contentious discussion about same-sex marriage, civil unions. And uh, one of our reporters was paying attention to that and ended up writing a story called Growing Up Gay in the North Country and really talking to a lot of gay people about what it was like to grow up in small towns in the Adirondacks where you didn't have role models, where you were different, and it was difficult. You know, this is 2002, and same-sex marriage in New York wasn't passed until 2011, I believe. I mean, so nine years later, that discussion was ongoing. And even then, it was still contentious. It cost uh, Roy McDonald, who's a state senator down here, his job because of his vote on that. And then even just this past year, did the federal finally pass uh, same-sex marriage as well? So it took, there's a 20-year discussion going on there. And the other one was, uh, you know, back in, 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 was it 2007, 2008, a guy in the community from the Council for Prevention brought to us and said, I'm seeing more people addicted to pills than I've ever seen in my life. We had never heard of OxyContin. We didn't know anything about that. We didn't know anything about the Sackler family. And we were like, I think one of the first uh, newspapers to really do a story about uh, the opioid epidemic and how it led to heroin uh, addiction and those kinds of things. And, you know, you're just way ahead of the curve on that. And the community responded with that. 
everyone had a story about that. They knew somebody or had heard of someone. And uh, I think it made a huge difference uh, in how uh, addiction was perceived and the problem that it was. I think about uh, working in local news in a small size city in Arizona on 9-11. And one of the things that really struck me in reading this book was remembering the time when local papers were also really a window on the broader world. You wrote about 9-11 and how the paper covered it. Can you talk about that day and, and how the Post Star approached covering 9-11? Well, you know, I, I think it's obvious that none of us had ever approached anything remotely like that. I was, what, two years into my tenure as editor, uh, and I remember coming in that morning and getting a phone call to turn on the TV and look at what's happening, and we all stood there for five minutes or something, and, uh, you know, when I saw the replay of, I think, uh, the second plane hitting the tower, and I said, that's not a small private plane, that's, that's intentional. And I turned to our feature uh, writer, who was the only one in the office, and I told her, Martha, go to Albany Airport. And she said, well, what do you want me to do when I get there? I said, you'll know when you get there. We didn't really know how we would cover it. But I mean, I started out thinking, okay, we're going to, the, the wires are going to cover this. We're going to run uh, one or two, maybe local reaction stories, and that'll be it. By the end of the day, the Postar had published 24 local stories. We had found a man who was local guy hiding in a basement of a building in the Twin Towers. We found another guy who was uh, at the Pentagon who had escaped just barely with his life uh, when the plane hit there. Uh, those were front page stories. And all, you know, the stories just coming and every reporter, reporter came into the office and responded with their own angle on stories and how people were feeling and how people were reacting to it. And then, you know, the, the publisher came out and said, we have to do a, a, an extra edition to explain this. And we had an extra edition on top of that. So it was, you know, one of those just incredible days. I, you know, I had the unique experience years later. I think I was at the Smithsonian and they had an exhibit on 9-11 and I was watching uh, a lot of the television coverage. And I'm like, I had no idea this was what was being reported and what was said because I was so tuned in to my own job and reacting to the news that was flying at me every, it seemed like every five minutes something new was happening. Uh, so it's taken a long time to kind of catch up uh, to what happened on 9-11 for those of us who kind of lived through it. Why was it so important for you to write this book? Well, I think uh, a lot of it is the recent times. I think the media has taken a, a hit and, uh, and, and it doesn't deserve that. You know, what we do in community uh, newspapers and community media around the country is uh, not what you see on cable news uh, channels in prime time. That's entertainment. It has nothing to do with that. We're part of our community. We take this job very seriously. And I really felt that people were starting to forget uh, the stories that we had did that made a difference. Things like uh, the heroin series. We did a series on domestic violence after one of our, uh, our editorial page editor had witnessed a murder where a husband had killed his wife in broad daylight at a convenience store. So I wanted them to remember that, you know, there, this was the type of journalism that was being done, that was helping the community, that was keeping you informed. And more importantly, to ask that question, who's going to do it in the future? 
There are several stories you write about that that kind of seem emblematic of how the climate has changed for the relationship between the media and the citizens at large. And I'm thinking especially about uh, how the Post Star covered the rise of Congresswoman Stefanik and also how it covered the financial crisis at the hospital in Glens Falls. What makes those two stories especially significant in your eyes? Well, I think, you know, they, they were kind of pushback. And I, and I guess, you know, in both cases, you have uh, community institutions that are butting heads. You know, in the case of Congresswoman Stefanik, you know, we came out during the 2018 campaign. You know, we were really growing kind of tired of the, uh, the, the tenor of, of the debate going on. It was all very negative and the campaign advertising was horrible and nobody wanted to see it. And there was no talk of the issues. And so, you know, our editorial board, which is different than the newspaper reporters at large, decided to ask both candidates not to lie. Now, I, I kind of thought this was ingenious. I thought this was a really great way. Who's going to, you know, say, no, no, no way. I'm not going to lie. Uh, and um, yet Congressman Stefanik never took that pledge. <laughs> you know, so she took it from there, I think, and was, con- you know, regularly bashing uh, our reporting, not only our reporting, I think. Uh, all the newspapers across the North Country saying we're all the left wing media liberal. You know, none of it's true, but, you know, that's what the convenient uh, talking points are. So I think that's that's unfortunate. And, uh, you know, she deserves a lot of the blame for, I think, undermining the reputations of uh, and credibility of local news stations. Uh, in the case of the hospital, again, another community institution where you know, they came out to us and told us how they were going losing a great deal of money. They had closed two departments, were cutting back on outpatient care. This is all affecting the community. Glens Falls is a hub of the for, for medical around the entire re- region. When we started reporting on it and we started hearing that the numbers were even worse than what they were reporting and things were worse, and then they denied it <laughs> and, and repeatedly denied it. And we had, you know, we were having employees who were coming through this. And they had a billing system that didn't work. And I mean, it was a lot of problems. And it was a shame. It was probably one of the most discouraging times of my career to see someplace like the community hospital going after the newspaper the way they did. And uh, it stood up. That reporting has stood up. And unfortunately, the, the hospital has not been held accountable since then either in terms of you know, we have not seen any, I haven't seen any financial information at all. How are they doing? And we know that hospitals are struggling. That's and, important to people. And, and at the same time, this was a case where where the money behind uh, the newspaper no longer had your back necessarily. Well, yeah, uh, certainly at the end. Uh, that's where we, we, we felt like the publisher was protecting the hospital uh, by the end of it. But, you know, we kept fighting the good fight. We weren't going to be cowed by that. And we continue to stand up for the, the journalism and the facts uh, that, that mattered. So when I wake up in the morning, and I, I imagine you as well, I can turn on my phone and scan the headlines in the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, um, listen to the news on the radio or on an app. Uh, how do you describe to people what's missing then from not having a robust local newspaper waiting on the doorstep in the morning anymore or, or when they get home from work in the evening? I think it starts with the depth journalism. You know, I, I think there there's certainly there's enough weekly uh, newspapers and digital uh, components that you can piece together a lot of the, the information that you need if you're willing to find go to three or four different sources. 
the the great thing about a, a paper like the post star over the years was it was one-stop shopping you had everything there right at your fingertips and i think the biggest thing that's missing that missing now is you know we we used to do an in-depth story in every sunday paper and and sometimes a, a huge three and four part series or a project you know as some of the ones i i i, I talked about that really got people thinking about what was going on. And, and, and we're not seeing that uh, hardly at all. And, you know, that's going to lead to problems, you know, and even, you know, the other part is just not covering a lot of the community meetings. You know, I, I found out this year that the town of Queensbury, where I live, is going to increase taxes 56%. Well, that's an amazingly large figure. If we had ever reported that in, in, in the, when I was editor, People would have been coming out of the woodwork. They would have been screaming. They would have been calling the, the supervisor and the town council. They would have been showing up at meetings and protesting, and it wouldn't have happened. Well, we, they never covered that meeting, and so they, no one knew it was happening. So we, we just saw it in our tax bill, and that's where it's going. You're, you're, you're going to, your, your taxes are going to go up. You're going to, uh, fewer people are going to vote. And there's going to be a lot more problems in your community where politicians will be able to kind of do what they want. Do you see any path forward for local news? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, you can get kind of uh, jaded by all this, uh, but I think there are still people out there fighting the good fight. You know, I did a couple of speaking engagements up in Potsdam and Plattsburgh uh, this past week, and you know, a couple of people say, "Hey, you know, we're doing this, we're doing this," and and you know, it is. It's, it's there is some things. I think that it's we're going to go through a, a tough patch there. I think finding out what works is going to be. You know, I, I don't see print as a long-term viable solution anymore, but I think there's going to be digital solutions, and once they can find a way to make money on that, and, and really the readers uh, have to, can citizens have to be willing to open their pocketbooks and spend for the good quality journalism. Journalism is expensive. It costs a lot of money to do those stories, and, uh, you know, we, we shot ourselves in the foot for too many years by charging 25 cents for a copy of the newspaper. It's, you know, it's, it, just producing it probably costs $3. Of course, now it is $3, but, uh, you know, I, I think that that's going to be a big part. You have to be willing to, to spend uh, for those subscriptions, and, you know, I always compare it to, hey, how much do you, do you spend on your cable bill? How much do you spend on your phone? you should be sending that type of money on your uh, news subscriptions. Well, speaking as the manager of a listener-supported radio station, that is music <laughs> to my ears. <laughs> uh, well, listen, Ken Singley, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us, and uh, best of luck. Well, thank you. I- I've enjoyed it, and uh, anytime. Ken Tingley was the editor of the Glens Falls Post-Star for 21 years until his retirement in 2020. His most recent book is called The Last American Newspaper. Today, Tingley and fellow Post-Star retiree Will Doolittle collaborate on a blog on the platform's substack called The Front Page Upstate New York. You'll find a link from ncpr.org slash northwards. Stay tuned. After a quick break, we'll check the weather, or at least the state of reliable real-time weather data across the state of New York. It's Northwards from NCPR. NCPR's Northwards is supported by Renew Architecture and Design, offering custom design services from the St. Lawrence River Valley to the Adirondacks. More at RenewArchitecture.com. And by Brewer Bookstore on Park Street in Canton. Open to the public Monday through Saturday, featuring books, household items, and gifts. BrewerBookstore.com You can have individual interviews from Northwards delivered to you every Friday. 
Learn more about the Northwards podcast at ncpr.org and subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. From North Country Public Radio, it's Northwards. I'm Mitch Tyke. How's the weather where you are? It is a simple question with a deceptively complex answer. Let's say you live in Edwards, New York, and you looked up the current conditions from the National Weather Service. The temperature and sky you'd get from the Weather Service is reported from Fort Drum, 40 miles away. And that can make a big difference. But for the last five years, a team of scientists has built a network of weather stations across the state of New York that tries to fill in the gaps. It's called New York State Mesonet, and June Wong is the program manager. Welcome to Northwards. Thank you very much for the opportunity. We're, we live in a world where there's the National Weather Service, there's the Weather Channel, there's Weather Underground. There are so many ways to uh, to get weather information. What were the shortcomings in how we measure and forecast the weather that Mesonet was designed to address? Uh, yeah, we started uh, about 10 years ago when we were thinking about to have more weather data in New York State. Before New York State Mesonet, we only had about 30 so-called uh, NOAA weather station, high quality weather station. We know that's not enough to cover this huge state, especially over the three mountain regions. We have gaps, we have the holes. In addition, there are some of the variables are not measured at all. For example, soil moisture and soil temperature. They are very important for agriculture. So those are the primary reasons we started this whole project. And there are, uh, like you said, there are a lot of other private company uh, operated uh, their weather stations, uh, even citizen science. Uh, you know, you can you operate your own weather station. In the end, the most important things is the quality. You want to help the forecasting. Well, and so then who are the users that Mesonet is most set up to benefit? So the primary uh, users, they are National Weather Service and emergency managers. However, our data users are way beyond those two. For private sectors, utility companies, transportation, and for the state agencies, DOT, Department of Transportation, DOH, Department of Health, they do uh, correlate the vector-based disease with the weather information, climate information. And also for education, K-12 education, we work closely with teachers how to bring our data into the classroom, into the curriculum, and general public. Because of the high spatial coverage, you can find your own backyard weather station rather than something very far away. So let's turn the clock back five or 10 years, I guess really 10 years, as you say, to the inception of this project. What had to come together to get Mesonet off the ground? I think we started with is the motivation, the reason 
uh, we just talked about a little bit. And so why do you need another one? And that was right after one of the tropical storm and one hurricane Lee. And the observation was not were not good. Uh, if you remember, it was a lot of uh, flooding going on in upstate New York. Uh, so we started with that motivation. And then in the fall of 2012, the Hurricane Sandy, Superstorm Sandy happened. So that's how we got the funding from the um, Hurricane Sandy Supplemental Fund uh, to set up this whole very comprehensive network. This this was federal funding, right? Yeah, yep. that was the startup was federal funding. Well, and so now what does the network consist of? How many monitoring stations are there and, and what are they actually measuring? Mm -hmm. So uh, the network consists of six networks. Uh, the backbone of the network is so-called our standard network. That means 126 weather stations uh, in New York State, every county has at least one. Most of them have two. Um, and then we have three sub-networks to measure something special and two micro-nets. Uh, it's one in the West, the Thruway Network, and one in New York City, it's Con Edison Micro-Net. So the, our standard uh, weather station uh, consists of 10-meter tower, you know, 10-meter by 10-meter fenced area. We measure all of the standard meteorology variables, pressure, temperature, humidity, wind speed, wind direction, precipitation. Uh, in addition, we measure some additional parameters. Uh, for example, for your region, people care about the snow depths, right? <laughs> Snowfall. We have an automatic snow sensor that's a sonic wave sensor. So every five minutes, you get a snow depth at that site. And then we have a pyranometer that measures solar radiation that's useful for solar energy application. And then uh, we already discussed the soil properties. We have uh, three soil props buried below the ground, 10 centimeter, 25, 50 centimeters below the ground, uh, they measure both soil temperature and soil moisture. Uh, all of the data are every five minutes. Uh, within 10 minutes, uh, they collect the data from the site and do quality control, all of those things and disseminate it to our website within about two minutes. Wow. And so I think it's important to make a distinction. I, I look at the staff list on the Mesonet website, and you know, there's there's one word that seems to be missing, and that's meteorologist. You are not strictly speaking in the weather forecasting business, right? No, we are not. Um, the Mesonet or Weather Network itself is a multidisciplinary research. It's not just a weather. So we have a software engineer hardware engineer, atmospheric scientist, uh, and physicist, uh, because you have to understand the instrument. Uh, computer science is the whole visualization and the whole data collection. And then from the user perspective, that's what you ask. Uh, it's not just a meteorologist, like emergency managers, they need weather information. And then the farmers, uh, they use data extensively 
one third of our stations are at farmers' uh, locations. They use the data, for example, most recently, uh, we have one station in Gabriel. Uh, you probably know where that <laughs> is. Uh, uh, and then the owner just told us how he used our uh, soil temperature to make a decision when he would go out to harvest uh, his potatoes. Because if the soil is frozen, you don't want to do that, right? <laughs> and then uh, I mentioned the forensic metrology private sectors, they constantly request the data. Somebody sue, somebody say, I fell on the ice. Was it, a, you know, was there ice storm that day? What was the weather conditions? So we provide certified data to them. How often are you hearing from people who are using this data? Uh, basically, on the daily database, we ask people to request the data on our website. They fill up the form. One of the questions is, why do you request the data? How are you going to use the data? That's how we collect all of those very interesting you know, usage. Uh, for example, today I got a, a data request from uh, um, Connectric. They are looking for our special network. It's called Profile. It's not just surface. It's looking at in the air. Uh, from the ground to three kilometers above the surface. We have a very expensive LiDAR network and giving you something like aerosol, the particle in the air. They want to see whether there's uh, any signal of the fire uh, smoke uh, things in the air. So you can see it's an air quality related uh, issue. You are, if if I'm not mistaken, your background is in atmospheric science. Uh, mm -hmm. Are are there surprises to this that that you've been finding out as you've done this work? Uh, you know, it must have been interesting to hear that you know people are are you know wondering the soil temperature so they can decide whether to harvest their potatoes. This is mm -hmm. probably not something you're always thinking about when you're studying atmospheric science. Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you for asking. Uh, I've been an atmospheric scientist for my whole career for quite a while. And in the past, it's mainly focusing on science, uh, especially climate side. However, working at New York State Masonet is in terms of so rewarding to see how the data are used in the real time for different uh, people. For example, last July, there was a a tornado, uh, EF2 tornado in the West. And the site host, he requested data right after the storm because one of the small buildings was totally tore down because of the very strong winds. He want the wind speed at that point to do the insurance claim. So it's basically moving from the pure science to applied science how this data would be very useful for people to make a decision. You know, I did, I mentioned those uh, different examples, but our main user is National Weather Service Weather Forecasting Office. They have the direct link to our data and camera image, I should mention, every site has a camera. Every five minutes, we get a, a camera image that has been proved very useful for situation awareness. They, based on our data and camera image, make a decision, say, 
your part of the world, whether it's snowstorm or ice storm, right, that make a difference in terms of people uh, making their personal decision. Um, so that has to be very rewarding for me. Have you been to many of the Mesonet sites around uh, the state? Uh, yeah, I have been uh, quite a few of, uh, not that many, you know, as many as I wish. <laughs> However, we have six technicians. They, every year, they have to visit every site at least twice. We call spring pass and the fall pass. Uh, right now, we are in the midst of the spring pass. So every site, every sensor has to be looked at. That's how we maintain the network to provide the high quality, high quality data to our users. So what can you tell us about how the Mesonet might evolve in the next five years? Yeah, um, thank you for the question. That's something I ask myself too. <laughs> uh, um, I think the highest priority is to continue to operate and maintain such a comprehensive high quality um, network to provide the high quality data. As the network is aging, we think about all oh, five, seven years, uh, it's not that bad. However, if you look at the sensors, they are 24-7, 365 days in the, in out there, given what condition, weather conditions we have, especially in North Country. And they are getting weared out pretty quickly. So we are facing how do we get to support this network? So that's my highest priority. Um, before that, we need to advocate for funding. So, yeah, it's a difficult thing to get buy-in from the state, although every state agency requests the data, but we cannot get support for our operation maintenance. And then the second thing is we really want to expand the network, saying, let's say, in your part of the world, you say, I really want a weather station like yours somewhere here the community, that region would benefit from this. We can work together how we can secure funding to do that. Yeah, additional variables like in New York City, we measure meteorology variables. Can we do more for air quality? So those are the things. And I think the last thing is to get the words out to the community how we can increase the applications of this unique data set. Well, I imagine that there will be some people who uh, hear about it this way that might have some uh, some ideas. Yeah. Uh, on our website, we do have our email address. So they can just uh, drop a line. We normally we re respond pretty quickly. Well, June Wong, it was a great pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for telling us about Mesonet, and best of luck with your work. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk to your audience. June Wong is the program manager of New York State Mesonet, a network of climate monitoring stations across New York. She's based at the University at Albany. You'll find a link to them from ncpr.org northwards. One more break, and then professional tuba player Charles Guy stops by the Northward studio and shares some music and talks about the place of the tuba in the music world today. This is Northwards.
NCPR's Northwards gets support from the Book Nook, an independent bookstore located on Broadway in Saranac Lake, on Facebook at SL Book Nook, and from Planned Parenthood, providing confidential, supportive counseling, education, advocacy, and a 24-hour hotline through their Sexual Assault Services Program in Clinton, Essex, and Franklin Counties. NCPR is a media sponsor for the Canton Canoe Weekend, May 5th through 7th, featuring activities for paddlers of all skill levels. More at ncpr.org slash calendar. Northwards Now, coming to you from North Country Public Radio. I'm Mitch Tyke. What comes to mind when you think about the tuba? Maybe a marching or concert band playing a patriotic John Philip Sousa tune on July 4th? Well, that is probably a Sousaphone, actually. But how about a German guy in Lederhosen playing an umpa tune at Oktoberfest? Charles Guy would like you to reconsider your image of the tuba. <laughs> While it often takes a backseat to other instruments and bands and orchestra, Guy believes the tuba is capable of so much more. He is the principal tuba player for the Orchestra of Northern New York and a professor of tuba and euphonium at SUNY Potsdam's Crane School of Music. He'll perform composer Jennifer Higdon's tuba concerto with the orchestra this weekend, and we'll hear a little of that work in just a few minutes. But first, Charles Guy becomes the first tuba player to join us in the Northward studio. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. What is the biggest misconception you hear about the tuba? Oh, there's so many that I'm not sure where to start. Uh, you know, I think some of what we run into is that we're underestimated. We're often thought of as, as being a role player, and that role is pretty limited to the bass voice of, of a larger ensemble and, and uh, helping out everyone else to have uh, the beautiful melodies or, or exciting lines. Uh, but many of us uh, would, would have it different, and uh, we've, we've studied quite a long time to make that the opposite, where we are not uh, limited to one role, but we can fulfill that role as well as uh, many, many others. I, I've heard uh, references uh, or, or saw the references out there to, you know, the viola of the brass world. Yeah, I, I think, uh, and violists, uh, I think, uh, run into that same uh, spectrum where they're they're thought of as, as, as having a very specific role, uh, and it surprises people when they, they bust out of those roles. Was this the instrument that you first connected? With? I actually started on trombone as a child, uh, 10 years old, uh, fifth grade band. I started on trombone uh, uh, and then uh, switched over to tuba in the seventh grade. Uh, went to the tuba because no one else was playing it, and I thought that that would be a, a real good chance to do my own thing. Well, and I, I wondered about that, whether uh, there's enough of a shortage of tuba players out there that the, the opportunities exist for them in a way that if you were one of you know 15 beginning trumpet players or 10 beginning trombone players, there might not be. I think every instrument is a little bit different in terms of kinds of, kind of the way they see themselves with, with one another. Uh, some are in, happy to be in a section, like you mentioned trumpets, might be in a section of three different parts uh, and often 
doubling those parts and are quite comfortable. Tuba players uh, in an orchestra, there's only one of us. Uh, and so that's, that's where I really see a chance to be an individual. We typically play as a section with the trombones, uh, but we are clearly quite different than those instruments. So yeah, I think early on, uh, it's, it's easy to kind of see the tendency for many uh, tuba players to be comfortable being an individual. But, you know, of course, uh, when you look across the spectrum of how music is used, uh, you'll see tubas used in coordination with one another quite often. What was it about the, uh, about the sound that you connected with? I don't know. Uh, that's a great question, though. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, but I, I think there is something that that, that just uh, does hit me as, as being just really quite beautiful uh, in, in some regards, but also quite powerful. The other thing is when you hear it live, you'll, you'll experience kind of this feeling that is not just the actual sounds around you, uh, but you'll actually feel the instrument. Uh, so I, I think it's kind of a combination of the, the whole experience. And, and that's uh, ultimately what we want is that uh, we're going to connect with people uh, and, and have our sounds reach the audience and somehow create a meaningful experience for them. What was the kind of music that early on as a tuba player you felt most connected to, most strongly about? Right. Yeah, that's uh, growing up, I mean, I, I grew up in a small town, uh, so there's actually no orchestras a- around. The The band program was what I originally connected with. There were certainly the normal experiences that many uh, others would experience in terms of a band program. But those were, that was kind of the way that, that it happened. And I was connected uh, mostly with the, not so much the music as, as the act of doing uh, the music uh, and, and connecting, you know, kind of being a part of, of something. Uh, it wasn't until uh, my senior year in high school, somewhere along there, that I actually got to play with an orchestra and experienced kind of the, a wide spectrum of, of musical opportunities uh, that, that comes with the tradition of the orchestra over hundreds of years. We've been talking about it for a while. I, I feel like we, we ought to hear you uh, play this uh, instrument a little bit. Do you have a piece you want to share with us? Sure. Uh, if I could play a little bit from the concerto that I'm going to play at the end of uh, April. Uh, there's just a few lines in there that I think uh, would, would help you to kind of understand kind of the spectrum of possibilities with the instrument. And, and of course, uh, kind of hopefully uh, encourage you to come out and listen to the orchestra in northern New York when I solo with them. So tell me what you're going to play first. So uh, from Jennifer Higdon's Tuba Concerto, uh, I'm going to play just the, the very opening of it. Um, the first movement is called Dynamo. Uh, it's a super exciting piece uh, that I'll, I'll just play the first few lines so you get a kind of a flavor of, of what's possible. And this is probably something that you're not used to hearing tuba players do, uh, quite technical in, in, in its approach. Uh, but this is Dynamo uh, from the first movement. The 
the second movement of the concerto, uh, like many uh, uh, of, of the concertos, will have a slow, more lyrical, uh, more introspective approach. This one, uh, Jennifer Higdon, is uh, titled Crescent Line, uh, and I, I think that kind of implies kind of the direction uh, that we're looking with this piece, which is more linear, uh, although it's pretty angular in its approach. Uh, so um, here's uh, Crescent Line. What, what strikes me about that is how surprisingly delicate it is. Right. Yeah. And that, that yeah, that's something, you know, you see the, the, the massive amount of metal and everything. You expect that it's uh, going to just be used for one purpose. But, yeah, yeah, it can be quite. It's you know, not just John Philip Sousa. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> And you had a, a third excerpt you were going to play for yeah, us. Yeah, the third movement of it kind of returns to kind of the more virtuosic type playing, uh, but this one's a little bit different. It's called Adamant Scherzo, and it's got these really rhythmic um, kind of driving lines, and so the melody is kind of hidden uh, kind of throughout it, but it's it's driven by kind of this, this exciting uh, articulate experience. <laughs> is probably most compelling when, when I'm with the orchestra <laughs> because there's so much interplay, all these little uh, interjections that, that you'll hear from both me and uh, the orchestra kind of fighting back and forth and agreeing some of the time. What was the point at which you realized that the, the tuba would be the means through which you would make your life around? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, so I I kind of didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up uh, all the way through until I was about a senior in high school, and that's when I started becoming more involved, um, uh, started playing with uh, the local youth symphony, um, and then, uh, you know, just kind of fell in love with the process of working uh, through things and, and, and the music that I would be playing, and, and that's when I, you know, kind of uh, decided I'd major in music performance uh, and, and got into that. Uh, my dad was a math teacher, and, and I saw a lot of the hassles that teachers go through, uh, and so I did not want to go into education at that point. But as I 
went through the process of playing, students became something that, that just happened. Easy way to make money in <laughs> grad school uh, was to teach uh, a lot of private lessons. And I fell in love with the art of teaching. And that's, you know, really my passion in addition to playing, obviously. I love working with my students at the Crane School of Music. Uh, they, they are invested in their selves uh, as, as performers and future educators. And that's, that's something that I can see myself uh, reflected in them. So, How healthy is the supply of low brass players coming up through Crane these days? Right. Uh, yeah. So, I'm, I mean, it always goes in waves. Uh, there's there's uh, certainly times when, when there are, are uh, a large applicant pool and then other times when there's not. Uh, we've obviously gone through a kind of a a rough patch in terms of COVID uh, and and just students that are, you know, highly engaged in uh, doing something that, that is oftentimes seen as extracurricular. So, you know, that's that's been kind of a challenge, but uh, this year I, I certainly auditioned a, a healthy applicant pool, so I look forward to, to working with those new students, but uh, also my students. Uh, I've got 10 tuba players and seven euphonium players that I teach at, at Crane, which is a very healthy studio. I know you have written for professional journals for tuba and euphonium players. Uh, what are the kinds of topics that are being discussed in the professional world today? Right. Yeah. So it's a pretty niche uh, market. Uh, there, there's, there's a lot of us that we just talk to one another. Yeah, I think my uh, subscription so. has lapsed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So in terms of that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that we talk about. A lot of it centers around new music, how we can get uh, people, uh, composers to write for us. Uh, and a lot of us will uh, work with one another to, uh, to encourage composers, uh, often pay them, uh, <laughs> and commission them uh, for their works um, and uh, try to expand uh, the things that we're used to playing. So um, it's uh, not something that a lot of composers are drawn to, um, you know, just out of the, the pure art form. Uh, so we have to encourage them. So that's a lot of times what we are, are trying to do, um, you know, and, and the concerto that, that, that I'm going to play, the Jennifer Higdon concerto is a result of of a commission uh, by Craig Knox and the Pittsburgh uh, Symphony Orchestra in uh, in collaboration with uh, the, the Scottish National Orchestra and, and John Whitener. Those kinds of things happen. A lot of us know each other very well, and we can work with one another. We certainly have our arguments uh, about pedagogy and <laughs> kinds of, of things that, that are really helpful. But uh, in general, yeah, we're, we're, we're talking... Uh, kind of about uh, a lot of things that it would advance our, our instrument. When you play a concert like the one that you're you're playing with the Orchestra of Northern New York, do you, do you see yourself, I mean, do you play kind of an ambassadorial role for the instrument? Yeah, I think that's kind of uh, kind of a given. Um, there's a lot of convincing that needs to take place, uh, both with the musicians in the orchestra and conductors, uh, as well as the audience. Uh, they often don't know uh, what to expect from us as soloists. So yeah, there's a lot of times when I you know feel like uh, you know a teacher on on the on the stage saying this is what we can do, and uh, that's a lot of fun. Sometimes when we show them what uh, we can do, then oftentimes they ask for more, and that's. <laughs> Uh, a lot of fun for us to challenge. What are some of the places that the tuba has taken you? You know, it's taken me all over the United States for sure, and uh, uh, some steps into foreign countries. Uh, it's hard to travel with, so <laughs> so that that often limits uh, kind of how how many places I can go. But yeah, it's it's certainly taken me all over the United States. 
So the question I'm sure you you get a lot, and and I'm thinking about as I as I look at the instrument sitting next to you, is how much does that weigh? It's not as heavy as you think. It's uh, hollow in this middle, right? So uh, <laughs> in in terms of that, uh, yeah, it's it's maybe. 15 pounds, so it's it's not too bad. It is uh, still a big hunk of brass, right. though. And I've got a bigger one back in my office that I usually <laughs> play with the orchestra. So this one is my solo instrument. The the bigger one, yeah, it, it, it it'll it'll get up there in terms of, of weight. So it's easy to imagine a piano player going into a room and there's a piano sitting there and they can you know spend an hour in their own world playing the piano or a guitar player. Do you have those moments with the tuba? Do you just, you know, disappear into uh, into a studio and play for an hour, a half hour to stretch? Sure. I mean, I think music connects with us all in different ways. Uh, for me, I, I usually see myself more as a conduit for those emotions where uh, the composer has spelled them out for us. Uh, and then I, I want to share those with other people. So a lot of times, uh, you know, the, the private times are, are learning uh, pieces. And, and uh, you know, some of that can feel more like drudgery than, than uh, you know, the, the pure emotional uh, positive aspects. But, yeah, I mean, I think kind of the quiet times of a warm-up are meditative. Um, you know, those moments that, that are just, you know, me and my tuba, you know, yeah, it helps me to center myself and, and uh, allow those things to happen. But when I am connecting with music, uh, that's when I'm like you know, really engaged in um, kind of the, the notion of what music can be and is for me. Well, Charles Guy, thank you so much for sharing your, your tuba world with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's such a pleasant conversation. Charles Guy is a professor of tuba and euphonium at SUNY Potsdam's Crane School of Music and the principal tubist at the Orchestra of Northern New York. He'll perform composer Jennifer Higdon's tuba concerto with the orchestra Saturday in Potsdam and Sunday in Watertown. There's more information at ncpr.org northwards. And with that, we come to the end of this edition of Northwards. Don't forget, you can subscribe to our podcast and get an episode delivered to you every Friday from the comfort of your phone or your computer or your smart speaker. And you can subscribe to the Northwards column delivered to you in newsletter form each weekend. Find them all at ncpr.org. I'm Mitch Tyke. Thanks for listening. Here and Now is next on NCPR, followed by Science Friday and the Beat Authority. Have a great weekend. We'll leave you with a performance by Charles Guy on tuba. This is the Sarabande from Bach's Partita in A minor. Mm-hmm.